You're listening to The Social Workers on WCDB Albany. Welcome to The Social Workers Radio Talk Show. I'm your co-host, Alyssa Lotmore. And with us today, we have Phyllis Kuzminski. Phyllis Kuzminski is a clinical social worker in private practice in Westchester, New York, and at the Center for Hope in Darien, Connecticut, where her work focuses on grief, loss, and trauma. Over the past 25 years, Dr. Kuzminski has provided individual counseling to hundreds of bereaved individuals and has helped many more in bereavement support groups and in the aftermath of traumatic events. She has conducted trainings for mental health professionals nationally and internationally in the treatment of normal and problematic grief. Her publications include journal articles, book chapters, and the book, Getting Back to Life When Grief Won't Heal. Her book with John R. Jordan, titled Attachment-Informed Grief Therapy, The Clinician's Guide to Foundations and Applications, was published in February of 2016. Dr. Kaminsky is an adjunct professor of social work at Fordham University and the immediate past president of the Association for Death Education and Counseling. Welcome. Hello. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for being on today. This sure. is such an appropriate topic with everything going on with COVID-19. So I'd Unfortunately, like, yeah. Yeah. So yeah. I would like to start off with, you know, talking a little bit about what does your work look like and how has it changed? Um, how has the face of grief changed with COVID-19? Well, you know, it's an interesting question because as, as we were preparing here, I was thinking about the fact that really it's in what, in one sense, of course, grief hasn't changed. Grief is grief. The way that people respond to the loss of a loved one is not all that different now than it was before. COVID and before the current crisis. But the circumstances that people are faced with in the aftermath of significant loss are obviously very, very different. So one of the ways that people's response to grief has been impacted is that they don't have the supports that they would normally have in the aftermath of grief. And that's something that I hear from everyone I speak to. The Fact, the fact that they can't uh, be with loved ones. I spoke to someone just this morning about the fact that they couldn't have the kind of funeral that they would have wanted to have. So the, the response that people have, the response that people have to significant loss is really impacted by all of the restrictions that are being placed on how people deal in the aftermath of grief. It's also impacted by what happens in the time before the loss occurs, because we know that there are certain parts of end of life that have a significant impact on how grievers respond after the loss has occurred. And I don't think I can uh, really overemphasize <clears throat> how difficult it is for people who are faced with the impending loss of a loved one to not be able to be by their bedside, uh, to not be with them. And so, so I'm seeing a tremendous amount of guilt that really relates to how people feel about not being able to be with their loved ones. So I guess the, in one sense, the answer to your question is that grief as an emotional response hasn't changed, but there are certainly circumstances now that tend to complicate people's response to grief. 
the other side of that too, and this is what I was thinking about a moment ago when you asked me the question, is that it's also changed obviously the nature of my work and the nature of all psychotherapy as far as anyone I know who does psychotherapy because everything that we do now is virtual. And I've been doing this now for three months. In the past, people have sent me requests from other states from all over the country asking me if I would do virtual grief support. And I've always said no. And why have I always said no? Because to me, being in the room with someone, having that space, having that holding environment is so much a part of providing any kind of psychotherapy, but particularly providing therapy for grief, because grief is a relational loss. And my whole approach to doing grief therapy is extremely relational. And my immediate thought was, how do I have a relationship, that kind of deep, connective, emotional relationship with someone if I can't be in the room with them, right? So when I did my sessions initially, I remember saying to someone, normally I feel like there's an exchange of energy and emotion when we're in the room. But doing it in this medium, I feel like all of that energy and emotion is going into a black hole, which is this machine that I'm facing. Recently, having done this now for several months, I've come to think of the computer screen, or I, I try to think of the computer screen, and to a great extent, I do think of it as a window rather than as a hole. So <laughs> rather than all of my energy and emotions going into a black hole and just being absorbed by it, I think of the screen as a window. So for example, as we're speaking right now, I imagine that I'm speaking to you directly, but through a window. Um, but I am talking to you. I'm not talking to the computer. That's so, a really good way to look at it because the whole virtual yeah. options that we're having, it's hard to sometimes be, feel that connection. But when you're thinking about it like that, it does help you reframe your, your thoughts and have it yeah. seem a little bit more normal. <laughs> I think that's true. And look, our brains have a tremendous amount of plasticity, right? Our brains adapt. I mean, we know that if you put on a pair of glasses that make everything look like it's upside down, eventually when you look through those glasses, you see everything right side up. And I think something similar happens for those of us who are doing this work on a computer, right? Initially, it feels so weird, but then little by little, our brains get used to it and start to experience it in more the way that we experience it when we're with another person. So. So you mentioned this has changed your practice in terms of having virtual sessions. Are there other ways your practice has changed, even people's responses to having to grieve during this process or how you oh, might address yeah. certain issues uh, as, with loss? Well, it's certainly, I mean, it's interesting because uh, I, I was talking to someone else about the disadvantages and the advantages. And one of the things that has been very interesting to me is that I'm seeing into people's homes now. And because I'm seeing into their home, because I'm in their home, in their room, they're able to show, uh, they're able to share pictures with me. Um, I meet their dog. Uh, you know, I, I, you know, I have a sense of the environment that they're, li they're living in. And that provides a different kind of 
intimacy. I'm also looking at their face the entire time, and they're looking at my face the entire time. And that also is in one way, and I've spoken to a lot of people about this, it's kind of exhausting because in normal communication, we have moments of intense focus and then moments when we're not as intensely focused. But when you're doing a Zoom therapy session with someone, you're intensely focused the entire time. And so are they. So a lot of uh, strong emotions come up. And of course, because I'm not in the room with a person, there's a way that I need to be able to help them to manage those emotions and to hold those emotions comfortably, right? Even though I can't hand them a tissue or even hold their hand, right? And so one of the things that I've learned to do, and actually it's one of the things that I, I am trying to teach my students is how do we have that kind of, how do we offer that kind of support, uh, that kind of presence, if you will, when we're talking to someone remotely. And also, how do we help people manage their emotions through a variety of tools that we might introduce to them in a clinical setting in our office? Which of those can be adapted um, for use in a remote situation? So for example, one of the things that I use with some people sometimes are you know, varieties of breathing exercises and even physical tapping. Well, I'm obviously not in a position to do any physical tapping with people, but there are exercises that we do where a person does that tapping themselves. So there's something that's called a butterfly hug where people cross their arms and tap on their shoulders. This is something that I can instruct them to do while I'm offering them a visualization and they can calm themselves using that physical exercise and then they can use that when they're not when they're not with me so the short answer i guess i don't really give short answers but the <laughs> the condensed answer to your question is it's changed my practice in the sense that i've had to adapt to the environment that i'm working in and really modify some of the practices that i use in my office to a setting that doesn't allow me to touch and to see and to be in direct contact with. So that's been a big, um, you know, that's been, been a big adjustment. The other adjustment, of course, is that because people are denied contact with friends, with family, they're not really in a position to get support from those people. I've had an increase uh, fairly noticeable increase in my in the number of people coming to see me. And I have to believe that that's because people who might otherwise be going to family and friends for support are finding that that kind of support isn't as much available. People who go to church, people who do all kinds of things to help them through difficult times. Do you know what I'm saying? We're living through a period right now where the ways that people normally manage stress are not available to them. So there's a lot of free floating stress out there. And a lot of that stress leads people to call somebody like me. The other thing is that because grief is so ubiquitous, because there's so much of it going around, that's another reason why people feel that 
what they might ordinarily consider to be avenues of getting some kind of support. Those avenues aren't available to them. Well, I think that what you have mentioned, you know, the increase and all of what you have been saying, it's true that there is a all those normal areas that we used to have to connect with individuals, it's it's gone or people feel uncomfortable, even if we want to. Um, like one of my uh, former coworkers who I was close to, her husband had passed away, not of COVID, but of cancer. And yeah. it was, there wasn't really an announcement for a funeral or any type of service that the, you know, yes. we could all go to. I couldn't yes. really go to her house. You know, it was, right. this is odd you know, right. type of, so that, I wasn't even sure to do a, as a friend, you. I wasn't sure what to it's do. It's hard for her and it's hard for you because you, of course, are her friend. You want to offer that support. You want to be available to her. And that just compounds your discomfort, your sense of unease because you have this support that you want to extend and you don't have a way to extend it. And do you find there's an increase in individuals in similar situations of people who might not, might not be the spouse or immediate family, but others who didn't really have closure? There wasn't a, a funeral that they could attend. There wasn't a, a way to come together with family. And they might be somewhat extended or a friend that someone that they might not, people might not address their loss of sure. their loss, but they're sure. still dealing with these. Well, of course, exactly. Because, you know, what does it really do to you when you can't go and, and be engaged and be involved with that is you get this kind of sense of almost magical disappearance. Like people have just evaporated from your life and there's no way to mark it. There's no way to, you know, to, to recognize that. And, one of the things that I think has really, um, that my mind ha has kind of changed about since this started is that, you know, initially there was a lot of talk about delaying uh, funerals, delaying memorial services, you know, just have a simple new burial now and then later, you know, you can do something to memorialize the person. I don't think that anymore because first of all, we don't know how long this is going to go on. And second of all, I think that people really need to do something closer to the time of the death. It doesn't mean that they can do what they would have wanted to do. And it doesn't mean that a year from now, they can't do something else. But I think it's important to recognize that the rituals that we have at the end of life, are the ceremonies that we have, however you can manage to have that kind of ritual or that kind of ceremony, you know, to do that, to do something, you know, to find a way to mark the end of that person's life. Um, and people are finding creative ways to do that. So I, I think that that's really important. Now, do you, oh, before we get in, you're going to be doing an upcoming workshop at the School of Social Welfare, which we'll talk about in a minute. But before we move on to that, are there any resources or tools or even um, ways to contact you or if people are interested in a type of therapy or interested in finding ways to express themselves during this time, be it through like something like yeah. journaling well, or yeah. what are some yeah, resources for individuals? Course. I mean, you know, the fact of the matter is that, um, you know, the internet right now is, is, you know, maybe it's just my feed, you know, given my interest, but, uh, you know, it, it's kind of, there's a lot of death-related information, let's say. Um, there are websites and feeds like uh, Modern Loss and um, 
what's what's your grief um these feeds these uh, what do you call them you know they're like uh on facebook facebook feeds and websites mm -hmm. what's your grief and uh and modern loss are two of them and of course uh the association that you referred to the association for death education and counseling has a tremendous amount of information resources webinars we did a whole series of webinars on grief uh, in relation to covid uh, and that series of webinars is free and available to anybody who goes to the website. We did about, uh, I don't know, nine, 10 of those webinars. And there are interviews with funeral directors. There are interviews with therapists. Uh, there's one that's all about mindfulness and grief. So I would say that uh, the Association for Death Education and Counseling website is really a has a wealth of information about this and then the other two sites that I mentioned as well. And do you find there is a connection to with because this is a, a unprecedented time where yeah. there is a pandemic. Do you find that there's also anxiety with individuals who are coming to seek um, counseling just because there's still, you know, there's still a, a virus out there that is impacting people in their communities. Is there a level of anxiety that might not have been there in other types of grief counseling, you know, in the pre-COVID days? Yeah, well, I mean, I, I think that some of the factors that we spoke about earlier, which have to do with really moderating the anxiety that accompanies grief. And, you know, the fact of the matter is that we think about grief in terms of sadness, but the tr truth is that there's a tremendous amount of fear uh, that tends to be involved in grief. People don't always expect it. And sometimes they think that they must be doing something wrong because they're so afraid. Fear is a natural part of grief. Anxiety is a natural part of grief because all of what happens in grief takes away the foundation of what people expect their lives to be, right? Everything that makes their lives coherent. So if you think about it from that standpoint and you think that on top of all of the incoherence that goes along with significant loss. Now layer on top of that an additional the additional impact of all of the you know the the uh, all of the changes and all of the dislocation that's associated with with COVID. So you have an anxiety producing event, and then you have on top of that. You know, you're putting that anxiety-producing event in a mega anxiety-producing environment, right? An environment that threatens the well-being, the safety, the lives of your loved ones. So if, for example, you have lost a loved one and you're in a world where everyone you love is subject to some kind of threat, how can you not feel a tremendous amount of anxiety? because you've already gotten the message that somebody you love can die, right? That truth that we all try so hard not to attend to, which is that people we love can die, you know, is right in your face. And right in the aftermath of, you know, right in the midst of having to face that truth, people you love can die, you find yourself in a world where people are dying all around you. So. And then, you know, and, and, you know, and again, as we've said, I mean, everything compounds everything else because you can't 
go and do the things you can't go to. I spoke to somebody yesterday, you know, her husband was dying. She was spending three hours a day at the gym. Well, once COVID started, there was no more going to the gym, right? So what does that do to her anxiety, right? So it magnifies her anxiety. So all of these things together make it stressful, make it tiring, make it confusing. I think that people need to understand that the lack of energy that they feel, the periodic despair that they feel, the kind of flattening of affect that they may feel. I'm not trying to suggest that every day is, is you know, crappy, but, but the truth is that um, we just don't really have the same kind of energy and attention and focus that we had uh, before this happened. And that's particularly difficult, and I always like to make this point, it's particularly difficult for people who are continuing to work from home. And if they're working from home and also caring for children, caring for uh, elderly relatives, um, this, the amount of stress involved with that is just tremendous. And if we're concerned about someone, let's say, but sometimes you talk to individuals who have gone through a loss and you see some kind of red flags, but they're like, I'm fine. I'm fine. And it, the, you know, the months goes on and months go on and it's sort of like, well, I don't think you're fine. What is a way to have that conversation? Or do you have any tips and our tools or resources? I don't know that, um, that I've been asked that question. What's interesting about it is that, you know, what you're talking about there is, you know, a, a group of people who really feel that it's their, you know, their self-image, you know, that they're really all about strength, right? And they're not going to acknowledge that this is, this is something that they need help with, right? Now, the fact is that we need to be sensitive to people's need to deny what they're feeling, right? Because denial is called the defense mechanism for a reason. Sometimes people have to defend themselves against feelings that they really don't want to acknowledge. What I would always try to do with someone, with a friend, is just to let them know that, first of all, that I, I, I can see that they're coping and that they're strong. And you know I just want them to know that I'm available to talk about whatever they might want to talk about. And if at any point they might want to talk about anything, you know, just to know that, you know, mine is an ear that's that's available to them. And and also just to say, you know, sometimes it's it feels like we just have to push all our feelings away and soldier on. And especially if you've ever been the kind of person who does that yourself. And I think a lot of us have done that at one time or another. You know, you can draw on your own experience. I mean, I can certainly draw on mine, you know, and say, yeah, there was a time when I was determined not to tell anybody how much pain I was in. And it took me a while to get to a place where I was able to acknowledge and talk about it. And it was only then that I realized, you know, yeah, I, I am, I'm hurting and it feels good to be able to, to just admit that and, and talk about it. So I think whenever we draw attention to our own vulnerability, 
you know, that can help someone else because nobody else wants to feel that they're not um, as strong as we are or that nobody wants us to feel sorry for them or most people. My father always said, you know, it's better to be envied than pitied. And, you know, I, I really kind of took that to heart. You know, I don't want people feeling sorry for me. But if you can acknowledge your own vulnerability, I think sometimes, you know, that's a gentle invitation to someone else, right? Now, in a situation where you're genuinely worried about someone, I think the only thing you can do in those cases is to say, look, I, I know from your standpoint that you're okay and I get that and far be it from me to tell you what to do. I'm not going to tell you what to do, but out of my own feeling for you, I just have to say, I just have to let you know that you don't seem to be all yourself lately. And I wouldn't expect you to be all yourself, but I do think about it and I do notice these changes. And I just want you to, you know, consider whether at some point you might want to talk to somebody about that. So thank you for that that response because there's, I think it's something that people who care about others sometimes encounter that type of situation, and you want to we want what's best for the other person, um, and to make sure that they're okay. So yeah, thank you, you for really that. Do. And you know, and I think it's important too, because this happens a lot with people who are grieving, not to expect that somebody. You know, if somebody is sad or even if somebody is crying, you know, a month or so after their husband died or their best friend died, you know, um, sometimes I talk to people who are very frustrated because they say that their loved ones or their friends keep telling them, you know, they just, you know, it's time for you to get back, you know, back on the horse, time for you to, you know, cheer up. And that's not really for the person who's grieving. That's really for the person who's giving them that direction. Mm -hmm. It's important to know for yourself where your concern and where the, do you know what I'm saying? Yes. To ask yourself, uh, you know, what's my motivation here? Am I saying this because I'm uncomfortable with this person's pain? Or am I saying this because this person's pain is a source of concern for me? Thank you. Yes. And this is sort of a good segue into uh, your workshop that you're going to be doing at the School of Social Welfare. And this is a podcast, so sometimes people listen to this later than the date. So uh, you already mentioned some other ways that individuals can get information on grief and loss and through the the webinars and recordings through the Association for Death Education and Counseling. But you are doing a workshop through the University at Albany School of Social Welfare's Continuing Education Program on September 10th, 2020. And it's titled Living and Coping with Loss in Everyday Life. So I just wanted you to give a little overview of what participants can expect at this workshop. Right. So, well, you know, I think it's interesting because the idea for this workshop, I, you know, really I was talking to them about doing this workshop a while ago. And I came up with this idea of focusing on non-death loss, which is to say loss that's not about the person, the loss of a, of a loved one, right? So needless to say, this subject, this topic of non-death loss is really, you know, could be like the banner headline for the world that we're living in right now, because grief is really a response, not only to the death of a loved one. Grief 
is the response to the loss of anything that we hold dear. And grief is also a response to what many people describe as the loss of the assumptive world, right? And that phrase, the assumptive world and loss of the assumptive world is one that when I, when I use it with people, you know, in recent months, they immediately grab onto it. They really get what it means without my even explaining it because the last few months have been all about the loss of everything from being having able to have lunch with a friend to being able to, you know, drive to get an ice cream cone, or I guess I'm really focused on food here, but anything <laughs> that involves hugging a friend or visiting a loved one, you know, all of this, going to work, earning an income, um, all of this, uh, you know, we've lost all of this. These are all examples of non-death losses. Now, the kinds of non-death losses that we're usually talking about when we talk about non-death loss are things like the loss of a relationship, not through death, but you know, through alienation or through divorce, right? Uh, we talk about, again, the loss of health, okay? The loss of youth, the loss of anything that has to do with us personally, or anything that has to do with us relationally. And in recent years, we've really come to appreciate the fact that what we think of as grief, that grief response is not only a response that people have when someone dies, it's a response that we have to all kinds of losses. When I was teaching my class at Fordham last spring, my students had to stop going to their, um, you know, their their placements, their social work placements, and you know, we talked about that within the context of non-death loss. And for them, uh, you know, it was something that they really had to grieve because this was an experience that they expected to have that was important to them, that was very tied in with their identity as people preparing to be social workers, and suddenly all of this was gone, right? And that loss of that significant aspect of their emerging professional identity was a blow, and they needed the space and the time to be able to give that loss the space that it deserved. You know, they needed to be able to give, you know, that loss the space it deserved. And I think that's a lot of what we talk about when we talk about non-death loss, is allowing ourselves the time and the space and really the self-compassion, right? Even if it's not a death, to recognize that these kinds of losses really produce a very deep feeling of, of sadness and dislocation and an anxiety because if I can lose this, what else can I lose, right? And if I lose this job or I lose this, you know, source of income or I lose this person, who am I then? You know. Well, so yeah, that's I, really what, yeah. What I think this is a really appropriate workshop. Like as you said, you had planned it for before um, COVID, but I think that right now this is a really appropriate workshop, especially for therapists and all areas because this is impacting any type of clinical session you're having because there is 
a loss incorporated, whether it's a an actual death or a non-death loss, this is coming into all clinical sessions. So it's the fact really that you're gonna be talking about some approaches to facilitating and supporting expressions of grief and other ways that clinicians can work with individuals, I think is very, very important right now. Yeah, sure. I, I hope that people enjoy it. So for those interested, it will you can register on uh, the Albany of School of Social Welfare's website, www.albany.edu backslash SSW and click on the continuing education tab. For those listening at a later date, again, there are many resources that our, our guest has mentioned where you can find webinars and other resources and tools to help you through navigate through the, the grief and loss process. And we are out of time. That one was a really quick segment, a very informative segment. And I am hoping to be at your workshop. It is on Zoom. So I will look through the window, as you said, and, and connect with you that way. Um, but is there anything you'd like to leave our listeners uh, as they're going through this time? Well, you know, I think that, um, you know, I always come back to the importance of kindness. And I think that we're all struggling right now and the fact is that the kind of struggling that we're involved in right now is really something that's not new for many of us you know we is life is struggle right but it just so happens that right now that struggle is so widely you know impacting us that we're aware of it so i think it's just a good time for us to be kind to one another and kind to ourselves well thank you so much for being on and those are fabulous worlds words to end our segment with Again, to our listeners, we were joined by Dr. Phyllis Kudzminski, who is a clinical social worker in private practice in Westchester, New York, and at the Center for Hope in Darien, Connecticut, where her work focuses on grief, loss, and trauma. Thank you so much. You're very welcome. You're listening to The Social Workers on WCDB Albany.